We read from the book of Luke, Luke chapter 4. We're going to read verses uh, 14 through 22. May the Lord bless the reading of his word. When Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee, the news of him went throughout all the surrounding region, and he taught in their synagogues, being glorified by them all. So he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up, and as his custom was, he went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he stood up to read. And he was handed the book of the prophet Isaiah. When he had opened the book, he found the place where it is written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor, and has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, and to proclaim liberty to the captives, and recovery of sight to the blind, and to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. Then he closed the book and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all who were in the synagogue were fixed on him, and he began to say to them, Today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. So all bore witness to him and marveled at the gracious words which proceeded out of his mouth. And they said, Is this not Joseph's son? May the Lord bless the reading of this word. Let's bow our heads in a word of prayer. Our Father, we come before you this morning, and Lord, we want to thank you for your word. We want to ask you, Lord, that you would continue to help us to understand more and more of what it is that you have given us. Father, we need your help. And Lord, we thank you for this word which encourages us in our life day by day. Father, we ask, Lord, that you would open hearts and ears and eyes to hear. Lord, that you would touch me. Lord, that your word would come forth and that I would not add to it or take away from it. Father, that you would help me to organize the thoughts in a way that people would see and understand and remember it would be beneficial. Father, we ask for this in the name of your son, Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. We've been working our way through the book of Luke. And, you know, we do this because each author has an intent to his books. And sometimes it's, there's many value, there's much value in doing it this way. Uh, it's not the only way. Uh, Spurgeon actually disagreed with preaching through a book. Uh, he said, you're not relying on the Holy Spirit to give you fresh anointing every day. But there is a, a sense that you teach the entirety of the book. You come to the hard passages. You come to the easy passages. You see things you wouldn't have seen because you're working through it, and you have this foundation of what just happened in the book. And we have been looking at how Luke has been showing that Christ is the perfect man. That's not, in the, that's not the way the Greeks would think of a perfect man, that he was handsome and strong and uh, wise in the world and in debate and mighty in battle. It's not that kind of a perfect man, but that he was godly. He was godly. He came, even in his genealogy, he traces Christ's genealogy all the way back to Adam, and that from Adam he was of God, not literally a son of God, that we've added that word, but that he was of God. He came in the image of God on his humanity side. He was the perfect man. He had to be to stand in our place. And so as we see this perfect man coming who was the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, he, of course, needs to be tested. So the very first thing Luke does is he, he shows us the temptation of Christ. As, as Christ is driven into the, into the wilderness by the Holy Spirit, and he's tempted. 
uh, we saw three temptations, 40 days he's in the wilderness. Each one of those days that he's in the wilderness, uh, he is being tempted. We only read about the three kind of at the end, I believe. Um, And we see that he was tempted in a way that you and I have never had to go to, a degree we've never gone to. Most of us yield at the very beginning of a temptation. Christ would endure all the way through the end and come out the other side having no thought, no desire, no word, no action of sin at all, completely perfect. And uh, we compared, if you remember, that in the garden, uh, Adam was tempted. He was in a garden. He had plenty of food. He had a companion made for him. He walked with God in the evening. He had great fellowship. He had clear revelation of God, knowing what was right, knowing what was wrong, uh, all the help that he needed. And Eve and Adam fell on the very first temptation. We saw that Christ was alone in the wilderness, uh, driven out there by the Spirit. We saw that he was tempted by Satan while he was hungry and alone and tired and, and troubled. Uh, we saw the temptations, that they were devious. There was no simple uh, commandment that says, don't make the, the stone into bread. There was nothing that was simple in, in some of these temptations. They were very difficult. Nothing simple on don't cast yourself off of the temple. No commandment that was given that he could clearly see. And yet each one of these temptations also applies to us because it, it appeals to some area. We saw the first temptation, the, offering, uh, the, the offered bread, command the stone to be made bread, and how this relates to the lusts of the flesh. Each one of us has things in our lives that we look at, and this is what we want for my pleasure. It makes me feel good, and so I want it. And Christ would rebuke this temptation and Satan when he would say, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. And he would say, it's not about what we want, it's about what God has said. And I'm not to go beyond where God has led us in trying to fulfill my own desires. I'm to wait for the Lord to provide from heaven. And uh, a very interesting thought there, a very deceitful temptation. The second one was on the lust of the eyes. Uh, Worship me and all the kingdoms of the earth, all their glory I will give to you. You will be exalted. You will have fame. You will have power. You'll have all this this glory. I'm going to give it to you, and I will give it to you easily. You won't have to go through the cross to get what God has promised you. You only have to do one thing. You have to exalt me as God. And, of course, Christ said, You shall worship the Lord, and him only shall you serve. And both of these... All three of them, we see it very clearly. The temptation comes in words. Satan does, we have within ourselves, we've already fallen. We already have the flesh, which has the lust of the eye, the pride of life, uh, and the lust of the flesh from John 2, 13, I believe it is. All three of these are in every person within our flesh. This is why Paul could say in Romans 7 that in my flesh dwells no good thing. He understands that his flesh desires what is evil. It it looks out and it covets easily and it desires to be lifted up and exalted. That's normal for our flesh. And Christ would face each one of these temptations as Satan would offer him things that were external, things that were words, schemes, deceit, as he would say, oh, you can have this. It's not going to hurt. 
Just bend God's word a little bit. Just ignore this. This isn't even truly a commandment. Just do what your body wants. And Christ would use God's word to answer each one of those temptations. The third one, of course, was the pride of life. Cast yourself from the temple and the angels will catch you and everybody will see you must be the son of God. Who else could be like that? And they will bow down and worship that you would be able to cast yourself off of this huge building and, not, and, and to land without any injury or harm. And of course, Christ will not do that. He says, you shall not tempt the Lord your God. And he shows us in, in this book, John is, or Luke is showing us that Christ answers the temptations of Satan through the written word. Because as Satan brings in his schemes, his deceitful knowledge, his wiles of the devil, his uh, arguments and knowledge, false knowledge that fights against God, what is the only thing that we have that will fight against this? It's the word of God. It's the truth. And when the truth comes in, it's like light shining into a dark place. We see the light. We see the truth. We see the disparity between what's true and what man is teaching us, what's coming in through these false teachings, false doctrine. And now we still have to make the right choice at the end. Many people know the truth, and they choose not to live it. I have to say that honestly. Just knowing the truth is not enough. You have to make the right choice. And when you fall, you have to get up, ask for forgiveness, and get back to following the truth. That's what God commands. That's what he calls us to do. We see with Christ, the perfect man, he was tempted, and he came through each temptation being able to answer it with Scripture. You know, in the last temptation, we kind of rushed that last week, and I apologize, But we saw that Satan can even use Scripture taking out of context. I mean, it was even in context, but but it didn't harmonize with the rest of Scripture. It would have violated parts of God's Word. And it's so easy for people to be deceived in that same way today as we, we look at one verse and... The, in Sunday school, we were laughing about what's the most well-known verse, and it's now, judge not that you be not judged. And how everybody uses that verse out of context. God has already declared what is true and what is righteous and what is immoral. I'm not judging when I say sexual immorality in all of its forms is sin. And you will stand in front of God and give an account for your, your immoral deeds. I'm not, I'm not judging. I'm not a hater. And I say sexual immorality deliberately because I don't want to preach about the sins of somebody else. I want to preach about our sins and the ones we struggle with. All sexual immorality is immoral and God will judge it. All of it. And God has given us these standards. We are not We are simply declaring what God has said is true. And so we can't use this verse, judge not and you will not be judged, in the context that most people want to say it. Oh, you can't know if this is right or wrong. You're not to judge. Well, God has actually said that this is wrong. The judge and the king of all the earth has given his law, and there isn't even a question about it. We will stand in front of the Lord and give an account for how we live our lives. 
And for me not to tell you that is for me to be guilty in front of God because he has declared it and it is so. So we come here to this section and that's just one of the examples we see of how Satan twists the word of God even in our day and age. And we go from there, Satan departs, verse 13. We didn't actually cover this one, but when the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from him until an opportune time. Satan's temptations come when we are weak, when we are are most susceptible to falling. And that's when he arrives, and he arrives with the easy out, the easy answer. And it's important to know that because when you are weak, and you know you're going through a difficult time, this is the time when you must be cautious that you stay in the word, cautious that you you rely more on God. You know, as James said, we studied that, uh, quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to wrath. Because the reality is we're often the opposite. We're quick to wrath, thinking we we have the right answer and the right knowledge, and we know it. And we're quick to speak. And let somebody else know. And we're slow to hear the word of God. And so God encourages us. We see this as we go through this. We know Satan comes when we're weak. We know there's difficulties. And what we need to do is stay in the word. It's not that you never fall. But we want to stay faithful as much as we can. And God, Christ has given us the pattern. When Satan comes, we go back to the word. We say it is written. And we hold to the sum of God's word. Now I go from there, and I think it's very important that we have that base as we go forward. Because this next verse, uh, verses 14 and 15, we're not gonna get any further today. This wasn't even my lesson as I was studying. I, I kinda had... I was going to go to verses 18, the spirit of the Lord is upon me. We'll get to that next week. Don't worry about it. But this is important. He says, Jesus returned in the power of the spirit to Galilee and the news of him went throughout all the surrounding region and he taught in their synagogues being glorified by them all. Now, this verse, again, just like the temptations, we usually read through them in our quiet time. We read kind of quickly, and we're trying to get done with our chapter for the day or our three chapters or seven chapters or however, whatever passage you're reading. And we don't spend the time to think on these things. But this came from Luke. Now, I I want you to notice that there's a difference between Matthew and Luke. If you go back to Matthew chapter 4, and we're not going to read it, but 23 through 25, we will see that as Jesus went out from the temptation, he was healing all of their diseases and their afflictions. The, The cripples and the lame were made well, the blind could see, and he was casting out demons. Now, isn't it interesting? Luke doesn't tell us that. Luke does not tell us that. And there's a reason for this. When Matthew wrote, he wrote to the Jews. We've looked at this before, but he wrote how Jesus was the the fulfillment of the coming prophecy of the king of Israel. And he will have everything in that to show that he was the king. From the coming of the wise men, he doesn't mention the shepherds, but he'll talk about the coming of the wise men. Long section on being born in Bethlehem. Um, he will have a section on, uh, 
Well, his four temptations, the fourth one is bow down, or the third one is bow down and worship me. The order is reversed so that he ends with you'll be the king of Israel. And then he also gives this, the, the details that Christ went out healing diseases, afflictions, casting out demons, because the king goes forth both with wisdom in what he teaches and the power to do it. Okay, Mark skips over most of this. He mentions that he was, he was tempted, but he skips over most of this. And the reason for Mark to skip over a lot of it is he sees Christ as the perfect servant. You know, if Matthew is the perfect king, the one who's coming in accordance with God's will and the fulfillment, in Mark, Mark is writing to the Romans and he's the perfect servant. He comes and he does. It's almost all the actions, very little of the teaching, almost nothing on the birth of Christ. Because nobody cares where a servant comes from. It's what can he do? Is he a good servant or is he a bad servant? And so he comes as the perfect servant. And when we come to Luke, we see the perfect man, the man who is in the image of God. And, you know, none of us are coming as the king of God, are we? And none of us are truly the perfect servant being able to do all the miracles and show the authority of God. But when we come to a perfect man, this is exactly what we are to be in the sense that this is who God has called us to be. We are to be conformed to the image of Christ as much as we can be into this perfect image of him. That's from Romans eight twenty nine, And so we see Jesus coming back and the one thing that... that Luke points out as he comes back in the power of the Spirit to Galilee, the Spirit leads him back into Galilee and works through him. News of him goes out through the surrounding region. This is about the miracles and what's happening. And Luke downplays that. He skips right over what happened. And he's focusing on verse 15. And he taught in their synagogues. He taught in his synagogues. Christ as the perfect man came to give us the word of God. And when Luke lifts up what his ministry was, he's pointing to the how important the word of God was. Not only did he go through all the temptations and he, he countered every one of Satan's temptations by bringing the true knowledge of the word of God in its fullness to the temptation. It is written, it is written, it is written. He was able to to escape all the snares of the devil, turn this rock into bread, because he knew the word of God. Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. And so as he comes into the land, the one thing that Luke wants us to see is he was coming, bringing the words of the Lord to the people. Now, this is emphasized about many of them that uh, in many of the, the books Listen to these verses from John, uh, chapter 8, verse 28. Then Jesus said to them, when you, when you lift up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am he and that I do nothing of myself. But as the Father taught me, I speak these things. Again, the perfect man, the perfect Son of God, he speaks, he represents the Father. John eight thirty eight. I speak what I have seen with my father, and I do what you have seen with your father. And you do what you have seen with your father. He speaks only what is true of the father. John 12, 49 through 50. I have not spoken in my own authority, 
But the Father who sent me gave me a command that I should say and what I should speak. And I know that his command is everlasting life. Therefore, whatever I speak, therefore, whatever I speak, just as the Father has told me, so I speak. In other words, he's saying the Father commanded me that I would go and I would speak nothing other than what God has said. And he says, I know that when I do that, the end result of that is life everlasting. Salvation will come to those who are willing to hear the words of God. And he says, so I go, and I only speak what God has given me to speak. You know, and this, he says again in John 14, 10, do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father in me? The words that I speak to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me, he does the works. Okay, both the words and the works are together, and the words that Christ does, even in speaking, be well, are the works that the Father wants done, the healing. All of this comes from God, not just from Christ. He was submitted to Christ. And that helps us to understand why in John... He would start out, and he says, in the beginning was what? The Word. This logic, logos, which we have the word logic, it's a complete argument. This complete picture of who God is. In the beginning, was this the Word? And the Word was God. And the Word was with God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made by him, and without him nothing was made. In him was life. In his words were life, and the life was the light of men. Because as we hear the truth of God, that is where we are introduced to the gospel. How can you really know the gospel without a preacher? Even as Tim said in his prayer this morning, You know, unless they are sent, unless the preacher comes, how will they hear? The answer is they won't. We might like that little quote of, you know, preach the gospel at all times and use words if necessary, but there's a degree that that is wrong. I mean, I understand we want our lives to be a reflection of Christ, but Christ came teaching the word of God. He used words and he gave us the word of God, the written word of God, so that we could know him. You know, we are so surrounded by Bibles. You know, I, I don't even want to guess how many Bibles are in my house. <laughs> I should ask my dad how many Bibles are in his house, see if he can come up with an answer. I bet it's, it's in the 20s or 30s. I mean, just a rough guess. And that's without counting boxes of Bibles to give away or, or anything else. But I bet between my wife, myself, my son, each of us has several Bibles. And I happen to have a couple more than most people. And with this plethora of God's word, we forget what a blessing it is to have it. You know, you go out and you go out to a country that doesn't have God's word or where people are illiterate and they can't read it. And you give them some way to hear the word of God. We used to have these little solar-powered MP3 players, and they had the, the New Testament on it, and we recorded the Old Testament in the language of the tribe we worked with. And people would listen to that. And as they would listen, you would see other people coming and coming to sit. 
and there'd be a little group of ladies huddled around one of them. Each one going, but this is God speaking. This is his word. How often have you and I attacked, uh, you know, gone to the word like that? But this is exactly what Luke is trying to bring out. When Christ came, he doesn't want us to just focus on the miracles because the miracles can distract us from what was really important and that was what he said. There, was, there will be several times in the New Testament in the Gospels where Christ is doing miracles and it will say he healed all that came onto him. And the disciples arise early the next morning and the crowds are gathering and Christ is gone. Christ is gone. You go, well, the crowds are here. Why don't you stay? Listen, they're all here. Who's here? The ones who want to see the miracles. And Christ has already gone up to the mountain to pray. And when the disciples find him and they say, Lord, why did you leave? He says, I must go and preach the gospel somewhere else. And he would depart to preach and to teach in other cities, in other regions. And the reason this is given to us is it doesn't, Christ did it even in his day and age, and he does not want us to be so focused on the miracles that we miss what was important. It was the words that came. It was the word of God which brings light to us that we can know what is true, what is right, what is moral, what is good, what is profitable. God tells us. You want to know how to raise your kids. Read the Bible. Go back to Proverbs. Go back to Colossians and, and Ephesians. It'll tell you what the standards are. It'll tell you how to discipline. It'll tell you what you need to know. You want to know how to live with your wife. Go to Ephesians chapter 5. Go to 1 Peter chapter 3, I believe. It'll tell you how to live with your wife. You want to know something. You don't go looking in a worldly manual of what the psychiatrists say. This is the best method we found after all of our trials and errors. You go back to the owner's manual, to the one who created us, and you read what the perfect example of how we're to live is. You want to know how a husband and a wife are to be together. Go back to God's word. And let God's word give you the, the knowledge and the information that you need. You know, it wasn't just the book of John that talks about how important this word was. Listen to this from Hebrew. God who at various times and in various ways spoke in times past to the fathers by the prophets has in these last days spoken to us by his son. Now, I can go on that he's the express image, the brightness of his glory. In other words, he is the very image of God. But the reason he was the image is he came bearing the truth of God. It wasn't that we look at his face in some representation and say, oh, that's what God looks like. God's a spirit. That's his humanity that we're seeing. But what we come out of with how he represented God is the words that he taught, the life that he lived, the purity that he had. Even the Spirit, when the Spirit comes, John 16, 7 through 11. Again, we get caught up in the miracles. Listen to this, though. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It's to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the Helper will not come to you. But if I depart, I will send him to you. When he has come, 
He will convict the world of sin. What is the very first thing that the Spirit does when he arrives? He starts to purify by convicting of sin. He starts to let people know there is a right, there is a wrong. And that right and wrong resonates with all of the human race. We might not like it, but we know it's true. We know when somebody else lies to us, steals from us, deceives us, that what they've done is morally wrong and reprehensible. We understand that. The Spirit, when He comes, He will convict the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment. He will teach us the Word of God. Zechariah 12.10 talks about when Christ will return and all of Israel will be saved. And I just want you to listen to this. He says, I will pour out on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem the Spirit of grace, the Holy Spirit, and of supplication. And they will look on me whom they have pierced. Yes, they will mourn for him as one mourns for his only son and grieve for him as one grieves for his firstborn. How is Israel going to be saved? All of Israel saved. Jesus Christ will appear on earth physically after the end times are over at the beginning of the millennium and he will walk through the land of Israel and as people come up to look, he will show them the scars on his hands and he will show them the, the spear that went into his side. Same way he showed Thomas. And their minds when eyes will be opened and they will understand that this is the one who they crucified 2,000 years ago and he is walking in the flesh on the earth. Today, he is truly the son of God. And they will be broken. They will mourn as if they had killed their only son. They will realize that everything that has happened to them from A.D. 30, when he died, all the way up until that time, all of the thousands and hundreds of thousands, millions of Jews that have been persecuted, driven from their homes, tortured, put to death, all of that's a part of judgment because they ignored their Messiah when he came and they didn't listen to his words. Oh, they saw his actions. And he said, why don't you believe? It's my actions that prove that I am he. You should be here on your knees in front of me. And Zechariah tells us that when he arrives, they will look at him and they will mourn as if for an only son. The Spirit will give them that understanding. In 1 Corinthians 2, 12 through 13, it talks about us with the Spirit. It says, now we have received not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God. Now, why have we received this Spirit? So that we can dance around and jump and hold our hands up and babble. Mm-mm, that's not what the Word says. It says that we might know the things that have been freely given to us by God. His job within the believer is to guide us in His Word. It's to teach us. 
Even the disciples in Acts chapter 2, we see the Spirit coming upon the disciples. They speak in tongues. And when this sound occurred, the multitude came together and they were confused because everyone heard them speaking in his own language. And they were amazed and they marveled, saying to one another, Look, are not these who speak Galilean? And then skipping down after the list of languages that they were listening to, in verse 11, he, they, said, they concluded this, we hear them speaking in our own tongues the wonderful works of God. So even when the Spirit came in the gift of tongues, it was to do one thing. It was to exalt Christ and to speak of the wonderful works of God. And when that happened, Peter immediately gives a message. And it is a message on how God has ordained Christ and even his death on a cross for the, for, as an atonement for sin. And they, with their wicked hands, have crucified him. And as he's preaching, they're falling down and they're saying, what must we do to be saved? And I challenge you, take out this word saved. We have this as an evangelical Christian word that's this nice little word that, you know, we want salvation. This is the word of we are, we are under destruction. We are, you know, f- we are in the water. We are going down. Judgment is falling. I am about dead. I, have, I need help. I can do nothing. Save me. It's a cry to God. And this is the word they choose to use after hearing Peter's message. What must we do to be saved? We are guilty of the body and the blood of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And we have asked, our leaders have asked, that the judgment for this sin be laid on us and our children. And there was such a a weight to this that they fell on the ground and cut to their heart, mortally wounded. What must we do to be saved? It was the words of God that came with the power. Satan would distract us from these words. It is so easy for us to get distracted into looking at the miracles. And I mean, the miracles are amazing. But the miracles were there to validate the messenger so that we would listen to the word. And if Satan can get our eyes off of the word and looking at the the miracles, he's won. He's won. We're fighting the wrong battle. Instead of looking at the word, we're looking for miracles. I, I did a quick search on uh, the power of God. The power of God. Most of you know Revelation, Romans 1.16. Paul is talking to the Romans and he says, I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation for everyone who believes, for the Jew first and also for the Greeks. He says, I am not ashamed of the gospel. Why? It is the power of God. It is the very power of God that calls the world into being. He spoke the word in light. He said light and light was. He spoke earth and earth was. He divided the earth from the darkness and he said separate and they separated. He says I will make a sun and he called the sun into being. I will hang the stars in the sky and it was. By his word every one of them exists. By his word they endure. This is the power of God when the word of God comes and you listen to it with an open heart and an open mind and you're ready to hear. 
Jesus in Matthew would say, Jesus answered, said to them, Matthew twenty two twenty nine, you are you are mistaken, not knowing the scriptures, nor the power of God. Right? It's the scriptures that's able to save. It's the word of God that's able to save. You should take heed to the scriptures as a light that shines into the dark places until the day star arise in your heart. Why? Because it is the power of God. It is the gospel. It's contained there. Paul would say in 1 Corinthians 1.18, the message of the cross is foolishness to those, to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. The message of the cross, the words, the story, the account of Jesus coming, living his life, dying as an atonement for sin. It's foolishness to those who are lost. They look back and they say, what does a man who died 2,000 years ago have to do with me? What a bunch of foolishness. And you and I know that every single person who is born on the face of this earth will one day have to stand in front of God. And you will have to give an account for your deeds. And either that account will be put on Jesus' cross and he will say it is covered by the blood. An atonement has been made for you. Welcome into my house. Or it'll say you are accountable for these deeds and you will be cast out into hell. It has everything to do with us today. Everything to do for every man who ever lived. Again, in verses 23 and 25 of 1 Corinthians 1, he says, we preach Christ crucified to the Jews, a stumbling block. And that word again preached is we herald, we declare this. We're not asking for options. We're not looking for a conversation. We're not debating if this is true. We are declaring from God, this is his word. 2 Timothy 1, 8 through 10, Paul is about to die. He's in prison for the last time. He says, therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord. Go back to the gospel. Nor of me, his prisoner, but share with me in the suffering of the gospel according to the power of God. Preach the word. Remember, that's what he'll get to in chapter four, isn't it? Preach the word. I charge you before God. And these witnesses preach the word, be instant in season and out of season. Preach the word. Declare it. Don't dispute it. Don't come asking questions. Understand it and proclaim it. So this is why we come to this section here and we stop. Because Luke shows us what the perfect man did. He went throughout the whole region. And Luke doesn't want us to miss the word. It has been sufficient for the temptation. And now it is the message that he is bringing to the people. Oh, he's going to get into the fact that Christ did miracles, that God validated him so that we would listen to his words. But first of all, he brings us to the fact that Christ taught. That was the part that he wanted us to catch about the perfect man. He heard the words of God and he brought them from God to us as the mediator between God and man. And he declared the word of God with power and great glory. Now, how can we apply that to ourselves? How can we apply that? First of all, I have to challenge us. We must know the word of God. 
It's too easy for us to say, well, I have a Bible. It's sitting there on the shelf. If I ever have a question, I look it up. I've got the internet right next to me. If I don't know it, I'll, I'll Google the internet. And if I can't find the answer, even with that, I could probably call a pastor. You know, when Satan comes to you and your body is hungry and you're crying out and he says, here, let me offer you the easy way out. Do this. You need the word of God in your heart. That word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against you. You need the word of God in your mind. Be not conformed to, the, to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. You need that word within you. Now, many of us go and we say, well, I read my Bible daily. I, I read the daily bread daily. I read this daily. That's the least of knowing God's word. You know, I, I would challenge you, read through your Bible, cover to cover. Another option, read through a book of the Bible multiple times in a row until you start to know it, 20, 30 times. Pick a short book. I think, I think if uh, I'm right, if you take the maximum of seven chapters, you can do the entirety of the New Testament reading through it 30 times in less than a year and a half with the maximum of seven chapters in a day. Then you'll start to know. Pick a subject and, and look for verses. You want to know how to parent? Find every verse on parenting in the Bible. Make a list of them. Write them out by hand. Meditate on each verse one at a time and say, what is it actually saying? How should I parent? How should I live? How should I? And as you read through your Bible, you'll find more verses. I guarantee you. I thought all the time, I think I've got all the verses on this subject. And you know what? <laughs> there's another one over there. And there's another one over here. And oh, that was a good one. And my dad will come and say, have you read this first? <gasps> and it's on that same subject. And you start putting these verses together and you start understanding what is God really teaching? Because he came to give us his word. Secondly, not only in our life, but in our churches. We must find churches that preach the word. We must find churches that preach the word. It shouldn't be about all the stories of my life. It shouldn't be analogies and, and videos up front and swelling music and all the things that they appeal to the outward man. But at the end of the day, we haven't been challenged by what the word of God says. We must hear the word. And if that means going to a small church, go to a small church. We must find a place that's teaching God's word, that we can understand it. We must train our children in helping them to know the word. They will never follow a parent who doesn't honor God first by putting God first in their life. And that doesn't mean my dad and I cry about this on a regular basis. And I, I use that term because there are almost tears in our eyes sometimes when we talk about this. How many parents back in the 60s and the 70s sent their kids to Sunday school while they stayed home and took the morning off? And how many of those kids are still in church? How many of their kids, the grandkids of these parents, the great-grandkids of parents who were faithful, are still following the Lord? The answer is almost none of them. 
because they have not taught their children. Deuteronomy 6 says, when you sit down, when you stand up, when you walk in the way, tell them about the law of the Lord. Talk to them about what you found in God's word. Live it in your life. It's got to be real in the parents if you want it real in the kids. When we minister to others, last application, when we minister to others, how do we minister? Oh, I bring them a meal. I try to encourage them. I say, don't worry, it'll be okay. Don't worry, be happy. How do we minister? We must bring the word. It means occasionally we must also deal with sin. Make no mistake about it. Sometimes we must deal with sin. But we must bring the word. We must read a section of scripture. We must say, you know, look at it. Have a verse to share. A reading that we can read together. Ask, what did you see in there that was good, that was important? Ask a question about it. If I don't know it, I'll call my pastor. I'll get an answer. I'll look it up. I'll think about it. I'll pray about it. But it's really bringing people back to the word. If we are not preaching the word in some way, shape, or form... We are not ministering to people's real needs. We might be meeting felt needs, things on the outside. And there is a time for loving your neighbor when he's sick and on the road and he's been beaten up. He doesn't need a message on God's grace. He needs a doctor. He needs an hotel room to recover in. But God has commanded us to make disciples and that's gonna take words and teaching. He concludes Matthew 28, 18 through 20. 20, and he says, teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you. It's going to take words. We have to be ready to teach. I thought I'd stop with that one this week because it's so important. This is another one of those areas where Satan in his, in his schemes that he works out in this world. He has devalued the word of God. He has extolled the experiences. Look for those experiences. And the result is we became weak and anemic Christians who don't know what God says and are easily led astray. We want to be strong, mature Christians, walking in the image, conformed to the image of his son. And the only way we're going to do that is by knowing the word and letting the word work in our lives. Let's stand as we close in a word of prayer. Our Father, we come before you this morning, and Lord, we just ask, Lord, that you would lead each one of us closer to you. Father, that we would be faithful in spending time with you and your word that we would realize that this word is life-changing. And Lord, that we must, no matter how we feel, continue to get back up day after day and spend time with you. Lord, that we must seek after churches which preach your word. Lord, which we must support ministries of the word. Those that teach and preach the word of God. Lord, that we must be parenting with the word, not only what it tells us on how to live with our spouse, how to live with our children, but Lord, also telling our children what the word has said, leading them in our devotion. Father, may we be faithful before you. We ask for your wisdom, your strength, and your guidance for each person here today. Lord, I ask you, bless us, please, with an understanding and a burden for your word that we would not go out 
thinking we can just go our own way. But Lord, we would go out submitting ourselves to you, determined that we would speak and do nothing else than what you have said to do. Father, we ask this in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ, who lived and died for us. Amen.